In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the fifth Sunday of Easter, and we are now closer to uh, the Ascension, and closer to Pentecost than we are to Easter Day. We are celebrating a week of weeks, seven weeks of this time of Easter and reflection upon the resurrection. Uh, We are also now close to this time of the ascension, 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead. And we are considering and thinking, we are contemplating what the resurrection life means for us, what it is that uh, Christ is doing and preparing uh, us for heaven, how it is that he's preparing us for the kingdom of God, how it is that we are learning to live as uh, citizens and the kingdom of heaven. And as we think about that and as we contemplate it, uh, one or two of these prominent themes continue to arise, uh, and that is the holiness of God, God's holiness and his, uh, his transcendence, his uh, distance from us in, in holiness and in righteousness. Uh, and And so uh, while we consider the imminence of God, the nearness of God to us, we're also seeing his his distance from us, his magnificent holiness and his wonder. And the Lord teaches his people over and over again in this kind of circling of the law, how it is that he is holy and how it is that they are to learn about his holiness and how to participate uh, with him in it. You see how uh, the Lord continues to kind of show them this in this circular pattern, first starting with Genesis, where we see the natural law revealed. Uh, Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve didn't have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have the law of Leviticus, and yet they knew right from wrong. Uh, They knew uh, that killing was wrong. They knew that stealing was wrong. They knew that lying was wrong. How did they know that? The natural law is imprinted upon our hearts. We're made in the image of God. And so the basics of natural law are known to all people. And we have record of the ancient laws of Sumeria and the ancient laws of the Norse, the ancient laws of the Chinese. And over and over again, we see that they warn against uh, thievery. They warn against adultery. They warn against lying and stealing. These are things that are written on the hearts of all people. And then the Lord brings them into a, a, a new kind of understanding of the law, a higher understanding of the law. He brings them to Sinai and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And uh, now we start to get this uh, way in which we're supposed to be uh, practicing in a kind of a systematic and a disciplined way the keeping of the law and the reminding of ourselves about the law and the holiness of God with the Sabbath day. We get this new understanding of how uh, God is holy and how Sabbath is preparing and giving us a discipline for holiness. And after Sinai with the tabernacle, uh, we get the building of the tabernacle and we get the the purity laws of uh, taking the blood and purifying the temple. And uh, we get the the Levitical priesthood and we get the the different uh, Levitical rites. And so more and more there's being added this new understanding of how distant we are from God and how how much we have to do to purify ourselves with this discipline and with this regimented lifestyle of worship so much so that we see by the time that Moses comes near to the promised land he can't make it and for uh, anybody who has ever read the law the question has to become if Moses couldn't do it how can we And within Moses' teaching them about the law, we have here in Leviticus uh, this 
uh, drilling down this again, this circling and this clarifying of the law in chapter 19. Uh, and, and so we might think about what is being done here in Leviticus as uh, kind of preparing us, if you will, for um, a, a sporting contest. Uh, any analogy you like will do. Perhaps an archery contest. And so uh, the law is showing us the rules for uh, this archery contest. It's telling us where out of bounds is, right? Uh, Where it is that you can shoot, where it is that you have to stand, the distance which you have to stand. It's telling us about the people that we're in the contest with, right? Beware of people who are going to be getting drunk and shooting their arrows, right? Beware of those people that are going to be dangerous and not using them the right way. Uh, You don't want to be practicing archery with people that are going to shoot you in the eye or the foot because of their clumsiness and their lack of discipline and so he teaches them this separation and at the same time he's kind of drawing a circle around the target of holiness if you will so he goes beyond the ten commandments he goes deeper and he starts here in leviticus 19 verse 1 saying you shall be holy for i am holy you will be holy because i am holy Because again, if we're going to dwell in his kingdom, if we're going to be in his contest, if we're going to be in his presence, we have to uh, be in his rules, we have to be in his ways, and he is holy, and there's no way for us to compete, there's no way for us to live outside of God's holiness. He then goes through some of the the simple commandments that we thought maybe were simple on the surface, and uh, he makes them uh, far more stringent. In chapter 19, verse 9, he talks about reaping the harvest of the land. And so uh, now we get this, uh, this beneficence that we're supposed to have towards the poor. It's not enough that we don't steal. It's not enough that we don't uh, take from those who don't have. But we have to practice an active generosity. Right, he says, don't go right up to the edge of the land. Leave the gleanings, right? Leave uh, some of the fallen grapes in your vineyard. And you're leaving them for the poor and for the sojourner. So again, it's not enough that you don't steal, but we have to be um, making provision for the poor and for those who are traveling and in need. Not only does he say that we will not steal, but in verse 12 he says, uh, we're not going to swear falsely and we're not going to profane the name of the Lord. And so he goes even deeper into the swearing and profaning uh, to set again a higher standard. In verse 13 he says, we're not going to oppress our neighbor or rob him, but we're going to give right wages. We're going to protect the poor, the blind, and the deaf. And we're going to do this because of our fear of God. We're going to do this because of our fear of God. My understanding for us when we die, when these bodies corrupt, is that we have an individual judgment, and then there's the final judgment where Christ comes again. So we face two judgments. We face that first judgment when these bodies corrupt, and then a final judgment when Christ comes again. In that first judgment, the Lord says, this is what I gave you, what did you do with it? I gave you these children, I gave you this money, I gave you this job, these talents, these treasures, these responsibilities. How did you use them? And part of what the Lord gives us are people in our lives. Perhaps the most important abundance that we have are the people in our lives. So there are people in our lives who are deaf, who are blind, 
And the Lord's question to us is going to be, how did you treat them? What did you do for them? How did you protect them or serve them? How did you care for them? And then in verse 17, he warns us against hate and against vengeance and against bearing grudges forbidden by God to bear a grudge. But then finally he says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is after all of that setting boundaries after all of that saying here's the out of bounds the Lord finally comes on this archery range to the bullseye which is in the shape of a cross. Because we can talk all day long about the rules, and I don't know if you've ever been in a sporting contest with somebody that wants to argue about the rules all day long and gains no pleasure out of the bullseye, out of hitting the mark. There's no joy. There's no love. It's all rule. And finally, the Lord says, to play this game right, to be in the holiness of God, we have to love our neighbor as ourself. And of course, the, the finest and only good example of this is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. That when we, in humility and submission, serve one another, we are aiming for the mark of holiness and love. And of course, this Jesus spends much time fleshing out, especially here in St. John's Gospel, where they are for several chapters in the upper room. John's Gospel reads so differently from the other Gospels when we consider its chronology, its theme, its organization. The other three Gospels take us from point A to point B. They tell us the order in which things happen. We see at the very end of those Gospels, Jesus entering into Jerusalem. We see the Last Supper, Him uh, standing trial and crucified in just a couple of short chapters. But in John's uh, Gospel here, in chapter 12, He's already entered into Jerusalem. And here in in chapter 13, He's already in the upper room. We're going to spend chapters with Jesus in the upper room as he explains to the disciples what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And you remember that in the upper room, as he serves the Last Supper, Judas is there, which we could spend a lot of time talking about, about what that means that Jesus allows Judas to be there, that he allows him to sit at table, that he allows him to eat Holy Communion. In the Greek, one of the few things I got out of my Greek professors in seminary, I'll share with you, is this image that stuck with me. He said that the Greek portrays crawling when we read about Judas eating Holy Communion without repentance. That when he receives the body and blood of Christ at the Last Supper, Satan crawls down Judas's throat after the bread and wine. A warning to us about how we prepare for Holy Communion. And when we read here in chapter 13, verse 31, we read, When he had gone out, that he is Judas. So Judas has left the upper room. He's left to go and betray Jesus after receiving Holy Communion. And now Jesus sits down and says, Now to business. 
Now I'm going to explain to you what all of this means. And he talks about glorification first. Which is kind of a funny place to go, don't you think? Because Christ has given up the glory of heaven. He's given up the glory of being at the right hand of the Father to descend into the womb of a virgin. He's given up the glory and majesty that the people expected the Messiah to take. And he's assumed this poor wandering rabbi, right? This is the role that he plays. And then he talks about glory and glorifying. And we might think, here you are, a poor teacher in this upper room, sitting with these fishermen, and just having a, um, a traitor leave your midst, and now he's talking about glory. Jesus is going back to the cross, to the bullseye. He's saying, now is the Son of Man glorified. What is he talking about there? He's talking about his crucifixion, his willingness to suffer death, his willingness to go upon the cross, his willingness to be the sacrifice for the blood to cleanse the whole world. So his glory is found in his submission and humility. We often think of glory as something that's done when we do uh, magnificent and wonderful things that draw attention to ourselves, how great we are. And yet Christ shows us that it's in submission and humility and suffering and in death that glory is found. He says that the Father is glorified in Him. And if the Father glorifies in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. You see, he says that over and over again. The Son glorifies the Father and the Father glorifies the Son. He goes through that over and over again just to make abundantly clear of this relationship. That is, the Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son. Because they are in unity with one another. And that unity is what we are promised to have with them. He says, I will only be with you a little while. This is pointing to his crucifixion, to his going away. They will be separated uh, for his time on the cross and for his time in the tomb. But then he gives them this new commandment, which we saw in Leviticus is not new. But is a restating of this commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. So what's new about it is Jesus says, I'm going to show you how to do this fully and completely. Because Moses couldn't do it. Joshua couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. They could not fulfill the law. And Jesus says, I'm going to show you how I will do it. How I will make it complete. So he says that we are called now to love one another as he has loved us. So now as the Father and the Son are glorifying themselves, now we see that in the way that Jesus loves the believer, the believer is called to lay down their lives for one another. And then he says people will know that we are believers... Because the Father has glorified the Son, and the Son has glorified the believer, they will know that we are believers if, there's that wonderful theological term again, if you have love for one another. I think it bears repeating this is not a fuzzy, warm feeling that we have for one another. 
This is a daily laying down of our lives in sacrifice as Christ has done for us. Of course, the only problem with all that is we can't do it. Right? Can't be done. Except by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we receive the Holy Spirit, when we turn to the Spirit, when we submit ourselves in prayer and supplication, when we ask the Lord to give us the grace that we need, we see the abundance of life and we see the apostles acting out this life of submission and love. And we see it beautifully told in the Acts of the Apostles chapter 13. You remember here that Paul and Barnabas have been in Antioch, Pisidia. This is the Antioch that's in the middle of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, not the Antioch of Syria. So they're far from home. They're here in the middle of Asia Minor, in the middle of Turkey. You see here that um, they say the next Sabbath, because you'll remember last Sunday, we read about the first Sabbath that they get here, and they preach in the synagogue, as is their custom, right? When uh, Paul and Barnabas would go to a new city, the first place they would go to be the synagogue, they would speak to the Jews who were there, to the God-fearers, the Gentiles that were there with them, and they would continue to preach as long as they could. At some point, in just about every synagogue, they got kicked out, eventually. They got kicked out. Because what they were saying over and over again was, the law is condemning you, because you can't live by it. Moses couldn't live by it. It's only through Christ and His sacrifice that we're able to live within the law, that we're able to live within the kingdom of God. It's only by aiming at that mark of love and humility and submission through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live this law of love. And the majority Jews that were there said, you're adding something new that we can't accept. And they condemned them and tried to drive them out, which is what we see in every um, place that they stop. The danger here in these readings, I think, especially for, for us, is um, that it would allow us some kind of prejudice. If in reading this, and we read the Jews do this and the Jews do that, we allow any kind of prejudice against the Jews into our hearts, we're reading this wrong. Because Jesus is a Jew who fulfills all the law and the prophets. And Paul and Barnabas are Jews who fulfill through Christ all the law and the prophets. This is not a con condemnation of an ethnic group. It's not a condemnation of the synagogue or the synagogue practice. Indeed, they go to the synagogue because they know this is where the law and the prophets are read. But this is a group of people who are choosing to reject Christ. And Paul, Paul and Barnabas say, when you do that, we will go to those who will hear. And of course, these Gentiles are desperate to hear because who are they? These Gentiles have already acknowledged that there is one true God. They've already acknowledged that he has a law, that he has the prophets, that he has a plan for salvation, that he has a plan to reclaim history, and they've been waiting for this to happen. The only reason that they couldn't come fully into the synagogue is because they couldn't pass that last final test of circumcision and practicing purity rites uh, in, in their lifestyle. This was a, a bridge too far. And now they hear that what they have to do is be baptized and receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus and aim at this cross of love and holiness and they can be saved. Can you imagine the joy that they felt? 
they finally can come into the fullness of the promises of God. And so we see that with the Holy Spirit, with the power of God together, proclaiming His name, they are finally able to live in the holiness and love of God. And because of their obedience, and because of their suffering, and persecution by those in the synagogue, we read that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It's crazy, isn't it? They got rejected, beat up, thrown out of town. And their response is to be filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Because this is the only place where in total submission and humility to God where we can experience and follow and focus upon that bullseye of the love of God and the hope of living in His holiness. The law has drawn the bullseye for us. It's drawn the boundaries. It's taught us the ways to live. And now our focus, our hope, has to be upon the cross of Christ, upon His love for us, and our hope of everlasting life in Him.